The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Exodus 33, 18-19, and 34, 5-6. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and get to Exodus 34. Uh, like I said earlier, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being pastor here at Citizens. want to welcome you. Today marks uh, the halfway point of our series, The Fruit of the Spirit in a Time of the Flesh. And so I wanted to take a minute just to kind of reset us on where we've been and where we are going. So over the falls, for the first three years of our church existence, we are building out a discipleship framework for us following Jesus built around three phrases. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And this series hones in on specifically that second phrase of becoming like Jesus. That we would, as we live out our days following after Christ, we would begin to look more and more like him. That our habits would look like him, our dispositions, our desires, our rhythms and routines more and more would look like that of our Savior. So we said week one, that means we need to know what Jesus is like. And I think the best, not exhaustive, but the best list for the characteristics and attributes of our Savior is in Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so what we're doing over this series is we're taking some time to look at one of the parts of the fruit, examining it in the life of Jesus, and then asking how does our flesh, our operating system apart from God, and how does the world go against that? And so week one, we looked at love in a time of selfishness. And then week two, we talked about joy in a time of cynicism. And then last week, Cole talked about peace in a time of anxiety. And tonight, I want to talk about patience in a time of hurry. Patience in a time of hurry. Let's start by talking about hurry. We live in a time of hurry. Let's do a little participation exercise. If you will humor me for a moment, feel free to raise your hand if you want to. If you don't want to, that's okay too. Uh, Raise your hand if at any point in the past month, you felt like you didn't have enough time to accomplish everything you wanted or was supposed to accomplish. All right, keep your hand up or raise your hand if in the past month, when someone asked you how you were doing, you said busy. All right, keep your hand up or raise your hand if over the past month, you drove over the speed limit, only like half stopped at a stop sign. You know what I'm talking about, like the rolling stop? Or maybe you changed lanes angrily because of a slow driver. I don't know, hypothetically, I'm in row road. Keep your hand up if you, in the past month, were stuck in a conversation that you didn't want to be in and didn't have time for, and you found yourself consistently checking your watch or tapping your foot. Raise your hand if right now you're like, can we just get on with this sermon so I can get to the food truck? Just kidding. Keep your hand, Lorem, jokes. We live 
hurried lives. We live lives of hurry. One of my favorite examples of this is in 1967, say with me, 1967, the United States Senate put together a subcommittee based around the idea that given the rapid rise of technology and automation, that by 1985, the average American would work 20 hours a week and 27 weeks a year. So they put together this subcommittee asking the question, can American infrastructure, highways, coastal cities, big cities, can they handle all of the vacations that Americans are about to start taking in 20 years with all of the free time that they have on their hands? We laugh because the irony is that rather than making our lives slower and having more time for leisure, technology has actually had the opposite effect in our day. In fact, statistically, now the average American works four more weeks per year than we did when the Senate did this study in 1967. Advancements in technology haven't made us slow down. If anything, they've made us speed up more, right? We don't just have coffee available right away. We have instant coffee available right away, where we just put our little pot in and press the button. We don't just have fast food. We now have order ahead fast food. Because fast food is too slow. I can't wait the 10 minutes. We have programmable HVAC AC units, right? You can walk to your hallway or even pick up your phone and press a button and magically change the temperature in your house to be whatever you want. We have email and we have access to incredible amounts of information and people all across the globe 24-7 because of a device in our pockets. We are pressed to live hurried lives. Psychologists have actually started picking up on this pervasive problem of American hurry, American inability to slow down or to shut off, and they actually named it something. They, they named it hurry sickness. This is how they define it. They said hurry sickness is a behavioral pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. This always having to be busy. This always having to do something. This constant state of rushing, whether externally Right? We're frantic. We just are always having to achieve, 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 accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. Or this internal state of rushing and anxiety where we sit down to watch a movie, but our soul doesn't rest. I got to check email. I got to text. Should I be doing the laundry? Should I be doing that chore? Should I be doing that thing? That's the whole epitome of multitasking is that we can't slow down. And this rushing, this hurry, this speed is actually having some pretty drastic consequences on us. It's affecting us mentally. So today, uh, the average American has an attention span of eight seconds, which the, the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds, so we're doing worse than the goldfish. It's affecting us emotionally. We talked about this last week with this anxiety epidemic in our culture. We just can't shut off. We always have that just deep feeling within us that we have to be doing something. What am I supposed to be doing right now? If we sit and there's nothing going on, it's like something within us is like, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I missing out on? What's wrong with me? This hurry sickness is affecting us relationally. We're irritable. We're hypersensitive. We lash out at others, at our spouse, at our kids, at our coworkers, at our friends. This hurry sickness means we don't have time or patience to build lasting friendships. We want intimacy immediately. We want depth of relationship immediately. We don't have uh, the, the, the bandwidth to take the time to grow relationships, to actually blossom friendships. We don't know how to sit in pain or discomfort when someone we love hurts us. We just want to bounce because we're so used to hurry and they're not repenting at our speed or maturing at our speed or reconciling at our speed. It's having consequences on us mentally, emotionally, relationally. It's also having consequences on us spiritually. 
I love the way uh, theologian Ronald Rollheiser says it. He says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. That was in the 1980s. Our hurry can wreck us doing the spiritual practices, right? Because if we're constantly in this state of go, 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 we don't have the ability to sit with God, to abide with Jesus, to be in his presence. We can grow impatient in our sanctification. We can grow impatient in our maturity. Lord, why am I still here? Why am I still suffering with this? Why am I still wrestling? Why am I not beaten this yet? We can grow frustrated with our lot in life. Lord, why am I not advanced more? Why am I still here? Why am I still single? Why am I still in this job? Why am I still in this city? Why am I still in this apartment? Why am I still in this house? Why am I still in this relationship? We can grow uncomfortable because we want life to move at our speed. But here's the deal. Hurry is not just this external system or speed thrown on us in American culture. It's not just that we've all bought into the rat race and here we are in the city of Charlotte in 2021 just going for it like the rest of culture. Hurry is actually of the flesh. This operating system of life apart from God. And hurry is of the flesh because hurry is incompatible with love for God and love for neighbor. Right, so 1 Corinthians 13, this famous passage on love. You've probably heard it read or at a wedding before, right? The very first characteristic of love that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is patient. Love takes time. What hurry does is that hurry puts us in a posture towards the world, towards others, towards ourselves, towards our circumstances, and towards God that demands immediacy and responds impulsively. Our flesh puts us in a posture of fleshly reactivity. It is, I want to show us today the fruit of the Spirit, the way of Jesus, is patience. Patience. We're called to patience in a time of hurry. So let's talk about this biblical idea of patience. Let me start by defining it for us. This definition comes from my friend uh, Brandon Shields. He's a a pastor at uh, Soma Church in Indianapolis, and this is what he says. I think it's so good. He said, Christian patience is a non-anxious inner presence that waits with God as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time. Christian patience is a non-anxious inner presence that waits with God as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time. There are two uh, main Greek words the Bible uses for patience, and I think together they give us a really good picture of this biblical idea, the fruit of patience. So the first word is the word hupomone. This has to do with patience in our circumstances. It's often translated as perseverance or endurance or being uh, long-suffering or steadfast. It's this ability to wait under pressure. If your circumstances are pushing you and you're hurting, our immediate response is to want to flee, to want to bail, to want to get out, to want to alleviate the pain. And this idea of being hupomone or patient or long-suffering means we wait on the Lord in the midst of our circumstances. We're patient. Second word that the Bible gives us is the word macrothumia. It means to be patient towards others. It, it literally, it's two compound words. It's a compound word. It's two words. It's macro, meaning long, and thumia, meaning passioned. So it's literally long passioned, long angered, which is not like means you're angry for a long time, but that you're long to become angry, right? So think about like someone who has a short fuse. Macrothumia means that you have a long fuse. You are willing to delay. If someone hurts you, you're not immediately responsive of just like, bleh. You wait. So macrothumia means you delay, you create space before reacting. You don't lash out, but you learn to bear with. These are two contrary ideas to our culture. So our culture is one of hurry, quick fixes, right? They demand perfection and immediate repentance and change, and yet the Bible calls us to the fruit of patience. 
called to wait on the Lord as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time, whether that be in our circumstances and situations or in our relationships. That's the two key categories you have to understand when it comes to patience. You got to have patience in your circumstances and in your relationships. Both were called to be patient. So then leads to the question we've been asking all series. How does this fruit show up in the life of Jesus? Right? How do we see patience in the life of Christ? Honestly, all over the place. <laughs> like Jesus was incredibly patient. There were so many stories that I could take you to in his life. His patience with Peter, his patience with his other disciples, how Jesus is patient with people in need. He's just constantly bombarded and interrupted and constantly uh, caught in, in people's concerns and needs and pains. He's patient with God's plans and circumstances. It's always baffling to me that Jesus lived for 33 years and 30 of those 33, he lives in relative obscurity as a carpenter. He's patient. He waits on the Lord before entering into public ministry. As I was thinking about this sermon, I kept coming back not to a passage about Jesus, God the Son, but about God the Father. And I think I'm stuck here because if you are like me and you grew up in church, I grew up with kind of this faulty idea, and I don't think I was taught it as much as I just kind of began to believe it as I read and was around church, that God the Father, God of the Old Testament, is like the angry dude, right? Like he's like lightning bolt in the hand, ready to smite you, just like waiting for you to mess up, just like, pow, got him. And then there's like God of the New Testament, Jesus, and he's like cute and fun and cuddly and like wants to hang out with kids. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you grow up in church, you, have this, you begin to have this dichotomy. There's like God the Father, angry, mean, vengeful, raw, and then God the Son, who's like all nice and wonderful and gentle and merciful. And I think this false dichotomy means that we don't realize, one, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That two, God the Father and God the Son are both God. We affirm the Trinity, right? God, one, God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But also three, that Jesus, God the Son, all the stories we read in the Gospels, that he is the perfect embodiment of what has always been true about God. That he perfectly lives out what has always been true. So when we read stories of Jesus' patience towards others, towards his circumstances, towards the crowds, towards his disciples, what we are getting is a firsthand look at the patience of God. It has always been true. Let me show you this clearly. Exodus 34. One verse, a little bit different than what we usually do, but one verse. I want to just show you and kind of just sit in this text for the rest of our time. A little bit of context for you. This is on Mount Sinai, Moses and God. Moses asks uh, God in Exodus 33:17, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are, reveal yourself to me. And this is what God says about himself. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a weighty verse. It's actually the most repeated verse in the entire Bible. It's actually repeated 10 times throughout Scripture. And, and most biblical scholars say that this phrase, this passage, besides the incarnation of Jesus, God actually taking on flesh, is the pivotal moment of God revealing himself in human history. God says to Moses, I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is crucial for us to understand. So let's take a minute. Let's break down those two phrases. First, this is who God is. This is what he says about himself. God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. The whole goal of this sermon is just to get you walking out going, man, God is great. He's slow to anger. 
He's not our view of him. Our view of him is that he smites us, that he's waiting, that he's just impatiently, I hope someone messes up so I can go, ha ha. That's not who God is. God is slow to anger. And that's actually abundantly clear if you consider the context of this passage. So let me do a quick, you're like, oh, dang. Let me give you a quick one, chapters 1 through 31 of Exodus because it's going to make so much sense how God is able to say that he's slow to anger. Here's the, here's the synopsis, okay? God's people, the Israelites, Exodus 1, are living as slaves in the land of Egypt. This is a brutal reality, a harsh reality. They just make brick all day long. It's a brutal torturous place for them to be in. And so God wants to deliver them and bring them into the promised land of Canaan. And so he raises up or tries to raise up Moses to help deliver his people. And Moses' response is, I'm not good at public speaking. Don't send me to talk to Pharaoh. But God is patient. So he says, okay, here's Aaron. Aaron will go with you. He will speak on my behalf. So they go. God does his thing with some plagues. The Israelites are delivered. They're brought up out of Egypt and into freedom. And now they should be celebrating, right? They're no longer in slavery. He leads them across the Red Sea, literally parts a huge giant sea. They walk across it on dry ground. He brings them out of their slavery. They should be celebrating, but they're not. They're hungry and they're tired. And they literally start complaining, saying, maybe we should go back to Egypt and slavery because at least they fed us. But God is patient. He sends them manna, bread from heaven. He has Moses hit a rock and has water come up literally out of a rock. And it's like, okay, at this point, you guys should be celebrating, right? At this point, God made literal bread come down from heaven and water from a rock. You should be celebrating, right? No, they start complaining. The bread is gross and it's stale and it doesn't taste good and it's bland and this is boring and we're in the desert still. But God is patient. He calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. They meet together for a long time. God starts establishing this whole societal system where God's people will flourish under the rule and reign of God. As the part of the Ten Commandments are part of that whole system, but it's taking too long. And the people are like, where's Moses? What are we doing out here? And so what they do is they gather all of their gold that they have. They burn it down. They make it into a golden cow, and they start worshiping a golden cow that they made. Surely this is it. But God is patient. Moses comes down and he is furious. He actually breaks the two tablets that have God's Ten Commandments written on them. And yet God calls Moses back up to Mount Sinai in chapter 33. And he's going to re-give him his plan for flourishing in his kingdom. And it's right there at that moment where God says to Moses, I'm slow to anger. After all of that, he says, I am slow to anger, which, if I'm being honest, is the exact opposite of how I am for way sillier reasons than a golden cow or bread from heaven. Right? I am just ready, willing to get angry over the silliest things. Let me tell you one example of this. This week was a lesson in patience. Literally, I was like, I'm preaching on patience. This is great. Uh, on Monday, uh, I was hanging out with, uh, for Labor Day with my daughter, Harper. We were at the park, and Lindsay texted me, and she said, hey, she's, she's been dealing with some nausea, and she was like, I'm not feeling very good. Can you, for dinner, pick up some McDonald's cheeseburgers and milkshakes? Uh, pro tip, if your pregnant wife, Lindsay's pregnant, if you didn't know that, if your pregnant wife asks you to pick up a burger and a milkshake, you just say yes. You're just like, yeah, whatever. You don't question the budget or question the plan. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes out of the way. You go to McDonald's and get the burger and milkshake. And so I roll up to McDonald's. I'm like, hey, I need a double cheeseburger. It's like, yes, awesome. And I need a chocolate milkshake. And they say what they always say at McDonald's when you want ice cream. <laughs> Sorry, sir, our ice cream machine is down. All right, that's fine. It's McDonald's. You kind of half expect that. No big deal. I get the burger. I know that right down the road, there's a place called Steak and Shake. They got to have shakes. 
right? It's in the name. Literally, the name of the place is Steak and Shake. So I pull up to the window. Lady's like, hey, how's it going? What do you need? Yeah, I need a medium chocolate milkshake. I kid you not. This is what she says to me. Sorry, sir, we're not doing milkshakes today. I'm sorry, what do you mean today? Like, are we taking like a Labor Day break from milkshakes? Like, we're Sabbathing from milkshakes. No milkshakes today on Labor Day. We're just not doing them. I'm like, what, are you doing steak? Because that's half your name. So if you're not doing half your name, what can I get here? And so I just, I mean, I lose it. And I fly out of the parking lot. This is probably why my car is broken. I fly out of the parking lot. And I go down the road, and I'm like righteously angry. I'm like, yes, Lord, I do. I'm trying to help my wife, right? I'm trying to serve. I'm so kind and patient with her, but not with these people. I'm just trying to get a milkshake. And I look up, and there's a Wendy's. Now, Wendy's doesn't have milkshakes. They have Frosties, but it's like good enough, right? Like I got to get something chocolatey, ice creamy for my pregnant wife. And so I pull up to Wendy's, and I can, this was the happiest person over the intercom that I have ever encountered in a fast food drive through line. So I pull up to Wendy's, and I'm fuming. I'm like grabbing the steering wheel, listening to like punk rock from high school, just angry. <laughs> Harper's in the backseat. I'm like, don't worry about it. And literally over the intercom, she goes, welcome to Wendy's. Like I was on a game show. You know what I mean? I'm like, uh, what, what do I do here? And this, this is what I said. Literally, this is what I said. I'm, this is not made up. I wish it was. Uh, I literally said to her, you got Frosties or what? And she doesn't break. She stays patient. And she's like, yeah, of course we have Frosty. She's like, what do you, we're Wendy's. And I was like, awesome. Got the Frosty, headed home. Kaboom. I'm awesome. Here's the deal. So many of us can believe the lie that God is like Tim on a milkshake hunt. Right? You're like, no, I think God is loving. Yes, God is loving. I can sing the songs. There's no other risen king. You, you love us. You sent your son for us. You can sing the songs, but there's like this internal piece of us that goes, no, God is like Tim on a milkshake hunt, and I am the person at Steak and Shake, and he's just waiting for me to mess up because he's quick to anger. He's ready to smite. He's ready to be mad at me. He's just low-key disappointed. He's fuming right at 55 out of 60. He's just waiting for me to do one thing wrong so we can just go, boom. I knew they were going to mess up. Boom, smite, wrath. God is slow to anger. God is slow to anger. And we don't believe that because none of us are. We don't believe that because for many of us, our friends are not. We don't believe that because for many of us, our parents, our guardians, we're not. But God is slow to anger. And not only is he patient with his people, he's also patient in their circumstances. This is the other baffling part of the book of Exodus for me, is that God is patient in the midst of the Israelites waiting. Think about this. The Israelites, they were enslaved in Egypt for over 200 years. 200 years. They were making bricks. They were living under the oppression of a foreign nation. And then we get introduced to Moses. Moses lives in Pharaoh's house until he's 40. He kills a man out of anger. He flees to Midian for 40 more years. So Moses doesn't show up on the scene to start talking to Pharaoh about letting the Israelites go until he's 80. God is patient in their circumstances. And then when God does send Moses to talk to Pharaoh about letting the Israelites go, he waits and he sends 10 different plagues, one after the other, before Pharaoh finally changes his heart and lets them go. So not only is God patient with his people, he's also patient in his working in their circumstances. God is always working on his timetable. He's never in a rush. He's never delayed. He's never too slow. He's never too fast. He works in his timing and in his ways. But it gets even better. Number two, that's the first, that he's slow to anger. Number two, he's abounding in steadfast love. 
his abounding and steadfast love. So not only is God delayed in his anger, he's actually the exact opposite in his love. He's lavishing with his love. Here's how uh, Pastor Dane Ortland puts it. This is actually from Gentle and Lowly. We're studying this book together as a church uh, this fall. This is what he says. He says, unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is bent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine, notice this line, divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. God's divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Now, does God have righteous judgment for sin and sinners? Yes. Right? If you read the book of Exodus, you will see this. There's several times in the book where both by the Israelites and the Egyptians, God is provoked to anger. But that's not what God is most fundamentally about. It's not what is central to him. What is central to God is his being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here's how Lamentations 3 says it. It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God's deepest heart is mercy. God's deepest heart is compassion. His deepest heart is relationship. His deepest heart is an overflow of love at the slightest prick that he wants to lavish on his people through his son. God in his kindness is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So let me just kind of sum all of this up for us. God is patient. If you haven't gotten that yet, that's what it is. God is patient. That's the way of our Lord. That's the invitation for us. And yet, in his patience, God is not just delaying. His delaying has a purpose. God's waiting. His delay, his patience is leading towards a desired end. His goal is not simply to be passive or to sit on his hands or to wait and pass time. His patience for circumstances and his patience for people are meant to lead to redemption. Here's how Karl Barth talks about it. He says this, the patience of God is a purposeful concession of space and time. God works in what theologians call redemptive time. So we, the thing happens, the event happens, the person wrongs us, the pain, the suffering, whatever, and we want to respond immediately. We want to be impulsive. We want to be reactive. We want to fix it. Now we want to reject them. Now we want to bail in the relationship. Now, whatever it is, God creates time and space. That's how God is different than us. That's God's patience. He creates time and space for growth and for maturity and for change and for redemption. Creates time and space. That is God's patience. That is his heart. And listen, that is crucial to the gospel. God's patience, his delaying for time and space for redemption is crucial to the good news we believe. Here's why. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, right? The first man and the first woman. Placed in the garden, it was perfectly good by God. And God said, one, do not command. Genesis 2.17, he said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, if you eat of it, here's what will happen. You will surely die. Have you read the story? Genesis 3.1, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They eat from the fruit. But here's what's crazy about the story. They don't die right away. God says, you eat the fruit, you're going to die. They eat the fruit, they don't die right away. Now there's punishment coming, there's the curse of sin that happens, there's real suffering they're going to endure, they will die later, but God creates time and space. What happens in that time of space? Adam and Eve have some kids. Who then have some kids? 
who then have some kids, and so on and so forth, all the way to where 2,000 years ago, a man is born under that line, and his name is Jesus. So God creates time and space in the punishment of Adam and Eve, in his righteous anger against Adam and Eve, in his mercy and kindness, he creates space such that the plan of redemption, Genesis 3.16, can actually happen. That the one born in the seed of Adam will crush the head of God's enemy, the serpent. And God, Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He embodies the patience of God. He entrusts himself to his heavenly father. He's perfectly patient for sinners who betray him and mock him and abuse him and kill him. He's perfectly patient with the plan of God for the cross and the grave. And on that cross, the cross that we look at as this pivotal moment in our faith, that cross is the perfect picture of God's patience for us that he would pour his wrath out on his son. God is patient for sin and sinners. And on the cross, we see what has always been true about God, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And here's the deal, church. Here's where we'll end as we head towards home. That patience continues today. God's patience that has always been true about him continues today. Here's what we read in the book of 2 Peter. Peter's writing to a group of Christians waiting for the return of Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, talking about the return of Jesus. The Lord is not slow to send Jesus back to make all things new like we're waiting on as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord has always been patient with sin and sinners. And so listen to me, if you're here today and you're here because you got invited, you're here because you heard there were some food trucks and you have no interest in Jesus, you've not put your faith in Jesus, here's what you have to know. The Lord is patient towards you. He's patient towards you. If you are not a Christian and you still have breath in your lungs, that is a sign of the Lord's mercy and patience towards you, wishing and desiring that you would reach repentance, that you would say, I'm tired of running my life. I'm tired of trying to be king. I'm tired of trying to be God. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't do it. I need Jesus on the cross, taking my sin on my behalf such that I can actually have a relationship with God forever. God is patient with you. He bids you to come, to believe, to trust. And here's the deal. If you are a Christian in the room, God is patient with you as well. I want to remind you of God's never-ending, never-failing, never-fading patience for you in Christ Jesus. Despite your brokenness, despite your flaws, despite your pain, despite your doubt, despite your uncertainty, despite the ways you mess up, despite the ways you're not a good disciple, despite the ways you don't follow him correctly, despite the ways, despite the ways, despite the ways, he is infinitely patient towards you, believer in Jesus, through his son. He's infinitely patient. Here's how J.C. Riles says it. Let this encourage you. He says, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all and casts none away. So the invitation for us tonight is that we would let God's patience lead us to become like Jesus in patience for others that we would learn to create time and space, that we would entrust ourselves to the timing of God in our circumstances and in our relationships, that we would embody a non-anxious inner presence that waits with God as he works out his redemptive purposes in his redemptive time. So I just want to ask you as we close, where is the Lord inviting you to the fruit of patience today? 
Or is he inviting you to the fruit of patience? Is there a relationship that you were too quick to write off that you just bailed out of because you didn't want to give space for actual redemption and time for restoration? Maybe there's someone you've been praying for and hoping for years to become a Christian and put their faith in Jesus, and God is inviting you to wait on him in patience. Maybe there's a particular suffering, something you would just keep wrestling with and fighting and something that keeps afflicting you, and God is inviting you to put your hope in his timing and his purposes. Maybe it's just the day in, day out, ups and downs of life, and you're trying to grab life by the horns, do it yourself as you rush about frantically here, there, and everywhere, trying to be king of your own domain, and God is inviting you to lay it down at his feet. To lay it down. To trust him, his redemptive purposes, in his redemptive time. That's how we follow the way of Jesus and the fruit of patience. In, in your bulletin, there's a, a practice guide. This is what we've been doing each week. It's how we are cultivating uh, this part of the fruit in our lives. This week, it's patience. There's two practices. Uh, the first is the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is something that we get to do as the people of God on a regular basis, where we practice and strengthen our ability to stop, to cease, to rest, and to trust that God's going to hold the earth together even when we stop doing stuff for a day. We have a whole guide online for that. Second practice is a practice of waiting. It's just a guided uh, exercise of prayer and scripture reading based around Psalm 62. I would really encourage you, if you're not doing the practice guides, do the practice guides. That's why they're there. We want to be helpful as you cultivate these fruit. Uh, God is patient. God is slow to anger. And so we're going to celebrate that and we're going to sing together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that on the cross we see the most incredible, unfathomable, un describable display of the fact that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you are slow to anger, God. And it blows my mind because I know even this week, I know even this afternoon, I know even on the way to church, my distinct lack of patience, my distinct desire to control my life, to have everything revolve around me, to have everything line up how I want it to, to take matters into my own hands, to lash out when people don't uh, go under how I want them to go my will, God. And yet you call me to see your patience, unbelievable, amazing, incredible patience, and to actually grow in my patience for others and my patience for my circumstances, God. And so I just pray, God, for those of us in the room who see our distinct lack of patience, God, would you help us to repent where we need to repent? Would you help us to believe you where we need to believe you, God? Would you help us by the power of your spirit learn how to be patient and to wait on you? God, if there's anybody in the room who doesn't know you, isn't a follower of Jesus, isn't walking with you, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, will move in their hearts. God, that they will see in a gripping, overwhelming way the love and patience you have for them, that you desire none to go to judgment, that all should come to repentance. God, I pray that you will turn their hearts even today to believe in you and to trust in you, God, to put their hope in Jesus, to declare with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and that the promise of Scripture is true, that they will be saved. God, we need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.